chapter 3. In two ways, Jesus has shown us the character of God. So his disciples believed, through his life and through his teaching. As we've seen, he lived among the people as God would live, doing the kind of things that God alone could do. But he also taught them directly about his heavenly Father. And it's clear that he knew things about God that no one else had ever known. To most casual bystanders, Jesus would seem no more than a poor Galilean carpenter who spoke well in the synagogue. But there was one at least who became aware that Jesus knew things hidden from ordinary human beings. And the implication was astonishing. Rabbi, declared Nathanael, you are the Son of God. Earlier than this, John, the last prophet of Israel, affirmed, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Soon Martha would tell him directly, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus himself said, I am the Son of God. And more mysteriously, I came out from God. Does this mean that in some way God was divided or extended in order to remain in heaven and yet occupy a human body on earth? Perhaps it does, but our human language and earthly experience do not equip us well to understand what is possible for an infinite spiritual being. Jesus simply talked about his Father in heaven and in doing so, told us more about God than we've learned from anyone else. Above all, Jesus taught us that we are deeply loved. His Father is our Father too, not distant and indifferent, but deeply interested in each of us. So we have this wonderful assurance. The Father himself loves you. He knows our failings and shortcomings. He hears all we say. He sees all we do and loves us still. And loving us, he's concerned to provide for us. It's his pleasure to give good things to his beloved children. Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus was undoubtedly a free thinker. He'd make up his own mind about anything, and the conclusions he came to were highly unconventional. In fact, his teaching turned everything upside down. The things that people value highly are insignificant to God, he said. Those who are last in the world become first in his estimation. Human kindness counts for more than religious ceremony. The simple faith of the poor is worth more to him than the lavish offerings of the rich. His kingdom is not to be seized by men powerful enough to demand it, but given freely to those weak enough to long for it. He condemns those who condemn and forgives those who forgive. He hides the truth from those proud of their knowledge 
and reveals it to those ashamed of their ignorance. And in the end, nothing, however unlikely it may seem to man, is impossible to God. All this and much more Jesus taught us about our Father in heaven, and how encouraging it is. In a restless and unhappy world, Jesus then gives us a most welcome invitation. Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Accept my authority and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. It's Jesus who shows us and then teaches us the love of God. We come to him, accept his authority, learn from him, and so at last have rest. There was one thing that Jesus did not need to teach anyone. His generation, like ours, knew it well. The fact is that incompatible people cannot live happily together. Adam could not stay in the Garden of Eden. Judas could not remain in the company of the disciples. There are certain behaviours which threaten and eventually end relationships. No one will choose to share a home with a person who's unpleasant or selfish or bad-tempered or deceitful. This may be a serious difficulty if we hope to draw near to God. We don't like to think of it, but the people in our house know us as we really are. To avoid difficulties, many prefer to live alone. Most of the time, we suppress our bad attitudes and bad behaviour. But some people seem to bring out the worst in us. Some places bring out the worst in us. Some circumstances bring out the worst in us. And where does that worst come from? Why is it so deeply rooted? Why does it rise to the surface? And how can I possibly be free of it? These are serious questions. If the Lord God is as good as we hope he is, how can I become compatible with him? How can I be the kind of person he would want to live with? Perhaps, after all, that worst is the real me, and I don't like it any more than he does. This sense of alienation is our biggest frustration. And solving this problem was Jesus' first great achievement. Unlike those who bring out the worst in us, he brought out the very best in the people he was with. In his presence they were both attracted and appalled. For the first time in their lives, they saw themselves as God sees them, and they did not like what they saw. Jesus didn't need to say a word, but in his company they suddenly, desperately, wanted to be better men and women than they'd ever been before. With Jesus in his house, Zacchaeus became aware of the terrible contrast between himself and his guest. He did not need to be told he was greedy and corrupt. In his own heart he knew it, 
and was overcome with shame. Urgently he resolved to put right all he'd done wrong, to start a new and better life. Others were worse than Zacchaeus. So much harm had been done by them, they could not begin to put it right. With Jesus in his boat, Peter knew he could never be at ease in the company of one who knew his darkest secrets. Go away from me, Lord, he begged. I'm not at all a good man. But Jesus had other ideas for Peter and for Zacchaeus, as he does for you and me. With him as their friend, each would have a chance to become a better person. Better indeed than they ever imagined they could be. For he would show them how. In Jesus, these men saw the living God. Attracted and appalled, they were astonished that he would still want them anywhere near him. But then for Zacchaeus, and for Peter, and for many others, a day came when Jesus did far more for them than that. Already he'd let them feel the shame, awakened an urgent desire for change, and welcomed them as friends. But then he went much further. He carried in his own body the penalty for all they had done wrong. This much he told them himself. Dying on a rough wooden cross, he paid the price for the gross and appalling wickedness of the world. He suffered the alienation that belongs to all mankind, and so reconciled us to the eternal God. Few people understood it at the time, although he explained it to them. The Son of Man, he said, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a high price paid to liberate men and women from a desperate and dangerous captivity. In the chains of our human stupidity and selfishness, we were all held captive until that terrible and magnificent day when he ransomed us. Then, his followers believed, Christ suffered once for all the offensive things people have done. The innocent died for the guilty, so he might bring us to God. All he ever asked in return is that we put our trust in him and devote our lives to him. That is all. Then he will bring us to God. But how will he bring us to God? The answer could not be more simple. He looks for us and finds us where we are, incompatible, alienated, attracted and appalled. Then he simply offers himself to us and for us. We may now come to the creator of the universe as friends and followers of Jesus and find acceptance for his sake. So to each of us, there comes the possibility of a fresh start, a new life. As one of his followers wrote, he himself carried in his body on the tree 
all the offensive things that we have done, so we might die to such offensive behaviour and live to do what is right. To accept this new life is to be born again. And it's a personal choice. It's between you and the Lord your God. You simply come as you are and ask him to wash away your own dark stain for the sake of Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. Then you will have the joy of feeling clean at last in the sight of God. So we are assured, if we confess the offensive things we've done, he's faithful and just to forgive our offences and to cleanse us from all we have done wrong. All this is clearly taught in the Bible. And when Jesus brings me to God, he does not introduce me to someone different or distant from himself. He simply welcomes me into the family circle, where he rightly belongs as an integral part of the family. Indeed, if Jesus brings me to God, he brings me to himself, and in doing so makes me welcome anywhere and everywhere the infinite creator God is found. He brings me as close to God as any human can possibly be. That is our first and greatest difficulty overcome. But there's another that may worry us even more. It starts when we're quite young, surprised by unexpected illnesses, shocked by tragic accidents, distressed by so much pain. It gets worse in middle age with pitiful loss of hearing, memory, mobility and sight. It moves inexorably towards dementia, breathlessness, heart failure and death. Can Jesus help us with the horror of our human disintegration and the universal terror of dying? Yes, he can, for he has battled with death and overcome it. For six long hours, as Jesus hung in agony on that wooden cross, his friends, his mother and other relations watched his life ebbing away until his final breath. Then having speared his heart to be certain of his death, the soldiers took him down. Laying his cold body in an empty tomb, the attendants rolled a heavy stone across the entrance, sealed it tight and set a guard. Two days pass. Coming to the tomb in the early dawn, his friends are astonished to find it empty. The stone rolled away, the grave sheet still lying where it was. Then he himself is standing there, alive and well. A little later he comes to his disciples in the upper room, walks with two of them on the road to Emmaus, cooks breakfast for some others by the lake, teaches a large company on a hillside in Galilee. At first they thought it was a spirit or a ghost, but he reassured them, See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
These friends of his were totally convinced that he had died and come back to life. But can we, so many years later, be sure of it? The Roman army certainly knew how to execute a man, and they positively confirmed his death. The Jewish authorities admitted that his tomb was empty and his body gone. It worried and embarrassed them, that much is evident. Then more than a hundred other men and women claimed they saw him alive in various places. His wounds healed, the scars still visible. They went out and proclaimed the news in the streets. When arrested, they declared it in the law courts. Threats of imprisonment and martyrdom could not silence them. They insisted. God raised him up, freeing him from the bitter pains of death, for he could not possibly be kept there in captivity. Three thousand people in the city immediately accepted what they said, for the evidence was undeniable. There must be many implications when a dead body comes to life. But one consequence stands out above the rest. We can be absolutely certain of one thing. There is now conclusive proof that a human being can survive fatal injuries, loss of all vital functions and death itself. A body may be broken, cold, utterly lifeless and yet make a full recovery. This happens so rarely that science has had no opportunity to observe the process of resurrection. We can only speculate concerning how a lifeless body might be repaired and reanimated. Is it feasible for each cell to be rebuilt from the genetic code stored in the mind of its creator, with every biological memory bank recovered and restored? And after that, is it possible for every organ to be activated and so come to life? If anyone can do this, the designer and maker surely can. But what did Jesus himself say about all this? He declared, An hour is coming when, not just one or a few, but all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is an uncompromising declaration that those great scourges of mankind, disease, damage, decay and death, can all be reversed and overruled. Just as he rose from the grave alive and well, so shall we. And what happens next for each of us depends not on the kind of people we are then, but the kind of people we are now. The early Christians had many things yet to learn, but of some things they were absolutely sure. While continuing to discuss wider implications, they held on to definite facts. There is much wisdom in this. However much we may doubt, there are always some things we can firmly believe. Such strong points will serve as anchors 
to stop us forever drifting. If I need to build or to rebuild my faith, I should begin by asking, what facts do I have? What can I be reasonably sure of? On a page in my notebook, I'll jot down a few things I believe to be highly probable or definitely true. These are matters I've thought about and settled in my own mind. Other, more doubtful issues can be left aside for the time being. Whatever I decide to write down is provisional, awaiting further confirmation. The following day, some words may need to be crossed out, or others added. The next day there will be more changes. Certain things I'll underline as I become increasingly sure of them. In this way, my own statement of faith begins to take shape. Each time I look through my notes, my confidence grows. I can affirm, that much is true. And, yes, I believe this. Whatever I write and underline will provide a measure of stability while rebuilding other elements of belief. As more and more is settled in my own mind, my faith becomes increasingly secure. Let's see how it goes. I might, for example, start by jotting down three things that make sense to me. I believe the natural world was designed by an awesome intelligence. I believe the Gospel writers have told us the truth about Jesus. I believe Jesus has told us the truth about God. These could be the first three points in my statement of faith. You may have written something quite different. So far, so good. There'll be more to add as we progress. But now we must look more closely at the meaning of faith itself. Someone has said, In every person's life there are moments when there is a lifting of the veil at the horizon of the known, opening a sight of the eternal. Each of us has at least once in his or her life experienced the momentous reality of God. Each of us has once caught a glimpse of the beauty, peace and power that flow through the souls of those who are devoted to him. But such experiences or inspirations are rare events. To some people, they're like shooting stars, passing and unremembered. In others, they kindle a light that is never quenched. The remembrance of that experience and the loyalty to the response of that moment are the forces that sustain our faith. Those are the words of a Jewish rabbi, a man seeking God in the way of his people. Faith for him is a personal response to a significant moment of insight or awareness. From then onwards, faith is sustained by the memory of that moment. He is right. An awareness of God is like hearing a call. 
Faith then sends an answering call that changes everything. Awareness reveals an open door, but faith walks through that door and keeps on walking. Awareness may happen once in a lifetime, but faith will sustain and enrich all of life forever. But there's something else equally important. We must understand that faith is more than mere belief. Belief may be no more than the passive acceptance of a probability or a fact. But faith is a commitment. Indeed, it's a daring adventure. I may believe in God and yet have no faith in him. I may be convinced he exists, but have no real interest in him at all. I may believe the Bible is true, but ignore what it says. I may even believe that Jesus died for me, without it making any difference to me. Belief like this is static and inert. It takes me nowhere. Faith, on the other hand, is a dynamic response of loyalty and trust. A commitment to a person who's won my confidence and respect. Faith is active, energetic and determined. To give one's faith is a promise. To break faith is a betrayal. In the early stages of my spiritual journey, my faith may be in the mysterious intelligence whose creation astonishes me, or whose presence I have felt. Or it may be in Jesus, whose character I admire and whose word I accept. But faith will grow to embrace all that I know of God, the God who made me and who became man to save me. My faith is faith in him. It means accepting whatever he offers, believing whatever he says, relying on his judgment, following his directions. I cannot depend on someone else's faith or someone else's saviour. I must be sure that when Jesus died, he suffered there for me, bearing what I have done wrong. And when he rose, he rose there for me, to assure me that I too will rise from death to life. As the thief cried out, Jesus, remember me. As Mary said, they've taken away my Lord. As Thomas declared, my Lord and my God. And Paul proclaimed, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not enough to know that others have faith in him. I need him to be my saviour and my Lord too. Faith is a very personal thing. It's my commitment to him, to his ideals, his cause and his purpose for my life. It changes my priorities, each day asking, Lord, what do you want me to do? Each day offering, here I am, send me. This is my faith. It's my response to his call. It's my trust in him, 
my loyalty to him and my willingness to follow wherever he may lead. My faith is between my Lord and me. No one else is involved at all. Yet when I put my faith in him, I join the company of people in every age and place who have done the same. Some of us have come to God as a consequence of evidences and insights, by means of a lonely quest and a profound conversion late in life. Others have come more gently, accepting as a child the faithful word of family, teachers or trusted friends. In one or other of these two ways we come with thankfulness to a knowledge of the truth. Yet each of these alone secures no more than half a faith. What I have discovered for myself must be completed by what I learn from others, and what I have learned from others must be confirmed by what I discover for myself. Moses once sang a song, This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Moses did not imagine for a moment that he was the first or only person to make contact with the creator of the universe. The God he worshipped was his Father's God. There was much he could learn from generations gone by. You may come to faith on your own, and then afterwards, to your great surprise, meet others who hold the same beliefs. Your God, you now realise, has been for many generations your Father's God. Or your experience may be quite different. From childhood you heard Bible stories, simply and naturally believing every word. But years go by before you have your own encounter with the living God. You've always known he was your father's God, but now he has become your God too. A secure and settled faith will have these two bright facets. It's both a heritage and a quest, embracing what I learn from others and what I discover for myself. Starting with one, I must make sure to secure the other. Then he will be, for me, my Father's God and my God too. If it happens that the living God reveals himself to me, that is no reason to start my own religion. To others, he's revealed far greater things, things indeed that I cannot know, as they happened before my birth or in places where I've never been. There were eyewitnesses in the Garden of Eden, on the slopes of Mount Sinai, in the stable at Bethlehem, on the Mount of Olives, at the place called Calvary, and in the garden tomb. What these men and women tell me will become part of my own faith. For Paul, the mystery of our religion meant things he'd heard from others but never seen himself. Of first importance for him were the facts of Jesus' life. So Paul tells us, 
He appeared in a body, was vindicated, was seen, was preached, was believed, was taken up in glory. Those historic facts stood firm and immovable through all the changing circumstances of Paul's life. His temptations, his persecutions, discouragements and triumphs could not alter the truth of what he believed and taught. The reliable testimony of others had become the strong point of Paul's faith. So it will of mine and yours. In times of trouble, this keeps us steady. When plans fall through, prayers go unanswered, friends let us down. When the suffering of loved ones seems pointless and unfair, with present circumstances confused and past insights forgotten, then may come the hard questions and the doubts. Where is God in this? Why would he allow it? Was I wrong to put my trust in him? And then, in our darkest moments, what if there really is no God at all? It's then that I most need reassurance and most appreciate the strength I find in the company of believers. As trouble rises up or as tragedy bears down, I need not face it on my own. With my own confidence shaken, I cling to the faith of friends I admire and family I trust. Others have been through times like this, held true to their beliefs, and indeed became stronger for the testing. They will have answers to my questions, or comfort for my sorrows, that I, for the moment, have forgotten or never knew. Yet no one can live forever on the faith of others. I must have a secure faith of my own. It's not sufficient to know that others are in touch with the living God. I need his help and guidance for myself. I cannot merely participate in my church's love for him or my family's love for him. I have a life to live with him myself. I must be sure that he loves me.